Hey, welcome back to the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Yeah. Well, hey, you're about to listen to the Bitcoin Podcast announcements, and we got to tell you something. What's come to our attention, people didn't realize this, and we got to let you know, these are sponsored episodes, meaning that the participants that come on these episodes have paid to get access to you, and that's the way that works. So, featured on our network means that it's sponsored. So, um, we wanted to get that out in the open. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Here it is. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Everybody, if you heard that amazing music by the absurdist, that specific tune, you know it is time for TBP's announcements. Um, today we are joined. We're just going to jump right in. Today we're joined uh, with Charles Cascarilla, the CEO of Paxos. Hello, Charles. How you doing? Great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Good deal. Well, we're going to start this interview like we start all these interviews, and you know, crypto hasn't been around forever. You were probably doing something before crypto came around, but we'd like to know what happened that fused your trajectory, maybe personally and professionally, with crypto. What are those crossroads? What's your crypto origin story? Yeah, so uh, I spent my career in financial services uh, before uh, coming to Paxos full-time about four years ago. And... um, uh, that was as an investor. Uh, I also worked on, and uh, when I was investing, it was always in financial services companies. So I started my own asset management company, hedge fund, private equity, venture capital, uh, and it's still around. Uh, in fact, Liberty City Ventures um, uh, still investing in blockchain companies. Um, but we came across Bitcoin um, when it was three or four cents. This was May of 2010. So it was pretty early days. We came across it. I was reading a newsletter, an investment newsletter, and uh, we had just gone through the crisis. It was a kind of a off the beaten path newsletter. And I remember getting to the last page and uh, it talked about Bitcoin and said, hey, uh, here's something that's completely novel you should take a look at. And always in the uh, process of investing in financial services companies have looked for technologies that could be disruptive. And when I saw Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin blockchain, they were one and the same at the time. There was no blockchain or Bitcoin, it was all one. I saw a technology that could really change a lot of the problems in financial services. Now clearly the technology can change um, a whole lot of different industries, but in financial services around payments and remittances and settlement, I saw a really um, uh, interesting technology. I didn't know if it would uh, com- uh, turn out to be truly successful or not, it was so nascent. But what was especially interesting was having gone through the financial crisis and seen the problem in the financial services industry. 
and a lot of the problems um, in the crisis were exacerbated by the fact that um, there was no real way to understand where your assets were or no real way to move your payments instantaneously. I immediately saw in blockchain a potential solution to many of those problems. And that's what got me interested. And so I started to basically buy some Bitcoin and mine some Bitcoin. And, you know, with CPUs, you could be, you know, five, 10, I think we were at one point we were 20% of the network just using CPUs uh, to mine. Uh, so quite early days. And eventually that led us to think about how do you take this technology to solve financial services problems? And we uh, then went about creating a trust company. So uh, we were incubating the business inside our asset management business and said, let's go out and turn this um, into something, a bit, turn it into a business that can really leverage blockchain. And in order to do that, you would need to um, create a financial infrastructure to do it, mm -hmm. uh, regulatory financial infrastructure. And so we created a trust company in the state of New York. We were the first one to be chartered to do this in May of 2015. And the whole point was, by creating a trust company, uh, marrying that with um, uh, blockchain technology, you could create a world in which you're really digitizing assets, you're mobilizing assets, changing the speed at which they move so that everything can move at the speed of crypto. And now you could completely change the nature of the financial system. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What, what do you think it was that leapt off the pages to you about Bitcoin? Because I know it's not it's definitely not ordinary for someone that was in your position, um, obviously in well in the, you know, entrenched financial system um, to see Bitcoin and think, oh, yeah, this this could change a lot of things. I think uh, a couple things. One is um, so uh, I spent some time on Wall Street, but I left and really focused on being an investor. And I think there's a lot of things that go into making you a good investor. But one of the key things is um, how can you have non-consensus ideas? How can you have contrarian ideas? Because consensus ideas don't aren't really going to make you a, uh, a lot of money. They're going to maybe just be a little bit better than someone else's. You really need to think differently uh, to be a successful investor. And so with that mindset in place, coming across, always looking for new technologies that could substantially change the industry of financial services, um, you know, that was embedded in our thought process and uh, in my thought process. And so coming across blockchain and Bitcoin, I didn't know if it was going to be successful. I honestly could have not told you that it was going to go from three or four cents to, you know, $3,500 um, and as high as 20,000. I hoped it would, but really what I had, what attracted me was the concept of it being distributed. Mm -hmm. And when I'm saying the concept of being distributed, I mean, like it, it looked like you could create a financial system like how the Internet had come along and changed the way you could create uh, change communication. And now you could um, add a layer that is as decentralized as the Internet to be able to move assets. Mm -hmm. And so that to me, that was the possibility. That was the hope. We're obviously very far from knowing that could be the case back then. Um, but. Uh, the possibility was so um, so big that it was worth spending time on and it was worth getting involved and it was worth you know starting to um, uh, become part of the industry I see so so naturally that's that's led to Paxos 
So why did you found Paxos and, and what was what's what's the mission with with Paxos? So the mission of Paxos is uh, mobilizing the world's assets. Okay. And, um, and and that's been the whole goal here. Um, now, I would tell you, when we first started, we thought that would happen on the Bitcoin blockchain. So um, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, journey that's happened. There were colored coins and there was counterparty. And for a period of time, the only thing that existed was the Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, uh, the, having this um, ledger that everyone would use and having it be the Bitcoin ledger seemed very possible. Now, as time has gone by, clearly we've seen there's limitations of the Bitcoin blockchain versus using something like Ethereum or potentially others like Stellar or Cardano or whatever it might be as um, an information layer as opposed to an asset uh, ownership in and of itself. Um, and there's a lot of debate around that. We could even talk about it. But um, clearly things have evolved over time. Um, but the, the whole concept of Paxos of mobilizing assets was why we started the trust company because it could allow us to create an infrastructural product where assets that right now are sitting on either centralized databases or they might even be a paper could be turned into a digitized blockchain asset. And by doing that, whether it's cash or some kind of commodity or security, um, you could create instantaneous movement of an asset and instantaneous tracking of who owns it. And that significantly limits the risks that exist in the financial system right now. Because the huge problem in the financial system is you don't know who owns what. Assets are lent out, they're moving around, there's no real tracking of them. And you constantly have this problem of uh, taking days for contracts to settle, trades to settle. And that builds up all the systemic risk and you can't have uh, uh, institutions fail. Lehman Brothers is a direct, uh, and, the, and the dominoes that set off is a direct result of the fact that the infrastructure is really completely archaic and out of date. And so we wanted to start Paxos with the idea to solve this very big problem of how there's a systemic issue in how assets move. And if you could do that, you could really profoundly change access to the financial system you could profoundly change the ability to create new products mm -hmm. and you could release a lot of capital and costs that are tied up in um, old structures that just don't make sense to be using anymore. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the, the problem that you guys have defined and observed is that, you know, asset tracking is not keeping up with modern times and it's getting to a point where there's almost systemic risk. So how is is Paxos solving that and how are they solving it the best? Yeah, I, and I would say it's not that there's almost systemic risk. I think that um, when you look at the crisis, <clears throat> the domino effects of Lehman failing mm -hmm. um, is because of the systemic risk from assets moving so inefficiently and taking so long to move. So you can never let anybody fail. So if we did like a very simple example uh, with uh, myself and you. So we agree to a trade today and I'm going to sell you a share of IBM for $100. Uh, now, in three days, we agree to settle the trade. So between now and three days from now, if you fail or I fail, well, you're going to have to go do the trade with somebody else, but the share of IBM probably moved. Mm. So you have replacement risk. That's not the end of the world, but that's not great. Um, but 
then there's another problem, which is on day three, uh, who goes first? Do you send me a share of IBM or do I send you a hundred dollars? And it's the it's hostage situation, right? You know, it's like, you know, who's going first, the briefcase of cash or the hostage. And so, you know, everyone's like, Oh, I don't know. We'll, we'll send it to a larger institution, right? We're not going to, we won't do it ourselves. We're going to send it to like, you know, uh, we'll send it to somebody that we trust. Yeah. Right. And that, oh, we'll call that a bank. Right. So we're going to go send that, like that uh, share of IBM and that money to a bank. Uh, well, we can't let that bank fail because now it's holding all of our stuff. And, you know, maybe there's too big and they guys said it's somebody else to hold. And so you just start layering in all of these trusted institutions and time. Mm-hmm. And so you have time building up and it's hard to track where everything is because it keeps moving on and on. And um, you can't allow an institution to fail. So you get someone as big as Lehman Brothers and they fail and you have hundreds of thousands of trades like this going on globally and it just becomes uh, a complete mess. Yeah. So that's the problem. That's, I think, a huge contributor to the crisis. Absolutely. Probably the, the true reason the crisis started was because there's too much debt. Now, no, I can't do anything about too much debt. Neither can you. Like we've as a society decided that we want to have a lot of debt. Uh, but what you can do is make sure you know exactly where all the assets are. And so, um, that you don't have to rely on anybody else. Absolutely. Um, right. And so that's what Paxos is trying to do is basically say, how can we take assets that are moving around the system inefficiently? And we do it today with our stable coin around cash. Um, we're uh, doing something in precious metals around this. We're also doing it, um, in, uh, us securities, um, and we do with crypto assets. How can we sit here and act as um, somebody that can help your assets move and move much, much more efficiently than they have in the past and, and give you control over them? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's very funny you mentioned that story about, like, how, you know, do we trade it at the same time? And I once read in a, a book that, like, all of adults – problems are just more complex versions of like childhood problems and then (laughs) it reminded me specifically of when i was in elementary school we used to play this game called pogs i don't know if you were that was a thing where you lived but there were these little cardboard cutouts and you used to compete to to take someone else's cardboard cutouts but then it got to a point it got so involved one our school shut it down because it got it actually got physically violent one day, but we used to have, we had to have a third party. We were like, I don't trust you to hold my pogs. And you don't trust me to hold yours, but Joey has a trustable face. So let's give the pogs to Joey and he's going to hold all the pogs and then we're going to compete. And then he's going to hand out the pogs the way they should go. And then there was one kink in the system is that one day Joey was absent and we couldn't keep track of who had what pogs. And then it just turned into chaos. And it's very funny. Like, seems like our financial system is just a very much more complex version of playground games. Uh, but anyways, let's get back to the interview. Um, so it sounds like in order to have a crypto asset, that uh, the world's first regulated crypto asset, as it says here, um, and collateralized one-to-one by the U.S. dollar, there's, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles that you have had to jump or, or maybe framework you've had to help build. So So... It it's kind of obvious to me that regulation is is important for the crypto space in your eyes. I, I hope I'm not assuming that. Um, but if I'm assuming correctly, uh, why do you think regulation is important for the crypto space at this time? 
Yeah. Uh, well, by the way, I don't. I don't know Pogs. Uh, that wasn't a game in Cleveland where I grew oh, up. But, uh, but, uh, but, but, but it's. I think it's completely perfect that analogy, right? Like uh, here we are uh, with a modern financial system that's moving, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars of assets, and uh, it's rela- it's relying on the same level of uh, um, uh, movement, asset movement, as you do on the play- on the playground. Mm-hmm. Right. Slightly, you know, slightly improved, but not much better, which is completely it doesn't make any sense. Why, why should it be that way when like you can you have control over like the entire universe of, of information uh, in the history of mankind at the tip of your finger? But we're waiting on days to move like some very simple uh, piece of information around, which is like who owes what to whom. And it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's part of the reason why we create a stable coin. So. If you think about um, this mission of ours to mobilize assets, what we realized is you can put a bar of gold into a blockchain. You could put a stock certificate onto a blockchain. You could put um, uh, you could just have crypto native assets like Bitcoin. And what's happening is you these assets are moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nearly instantaneously, and they're programmable. But if you do a transaction, the other side of that transaction is probably cash. Mm-hmm. And how does cash move? It goes right back into that old system that we just described, the POG system, I guess, we'll, you know, for this interview. <laughs> uh, so you got cash moving on the POG system, which is um, it takes days. It shouldn't, especially if it's international, it's taking days, it's moving through multiple different banks. They're holding it each step along the way, um, and they're very inefficient. And their back office systems are, you know, really like for most of them, is like some version of a mainframe or, you know, really like 20 or 30 year old piece of technology. And um, so how can you have assets moving at the speed of the internet, but you have your payment moving at the pace of like the post office? <laughs> it just doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah, doesn't right. Like in some cases it's easier for you to, you know, get a piece of mail across the country than it is to like move a share IBM around that. That doesn't make sense either. So that's why we create a stable coin. And I think it's valuable to be regulated because what is regulation saying? It's basically saying, hey, there's an outside person who's coming in and you don't just have to take my word that I'm a good person. Uh, there is an independent party who will come in and and see whether or not you're doing things the way you say you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think regulation is valuable. And it makes sure that you're doing things. And, um, and I'll explain like, what regulation specifically means for us, but that's what it means in general. Like, you know, Hey, you're doing things uh, the way you say you are. Uh, and there's an independent person who's, you know, giving that stamp. Um, so we, the reason we created the stable coin is to solve this problem of how could you move your cash payments just as fast as you can move any other asset on a blockchain. And how could you do it in a way that you really trust? And I think this is part of what we saw because clearly there are other stable coins that existed before we came along. Um, and, uh, but I think there's been a lot of issues around like what is the appropriate level of trust you should have in it, have in any stable coin. So when we created a trust company in the state of New York, so I'll describe what does regulation mean for us. Um, we chartered a financial institution. We're organized under New York banking law. Um, it's uh, you, when you form the company, you um, enter into a legal agreement with the state of New York's regulator about what you can and cannot do. 
and it's called a supervisory agreement. So this is not like I formed a corporation, I went and got a license. This is not a money transmission license. This is literally, we can only form the company because the state of New York let us and because we agreed to follow a bunch of different rules that they gave us. Mm-hmm. So it's a different thing. It's like you've entered into a formal legal agreement that you cannot um, avoid. You couldn't just say, I'm going to deregister. Uh, that doesn't work that way. I'm going to like get rid of my, my money transmission license. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so what that means is when every time we launch a product and we're using the trust, our regulator has to approve it. So they approve our application to do a new product and then they're overseeing that product. Right? This is a lot of oversight that's going on. You know, it's not always the easiest thing to do, but the reason it's worth it is because our customers can say, Hey, the department of financial services is coming in and they're doing an exam for four to six weeks a year. We're required to have Grant Thornton go through and be an internal auditor and go through all of our policies and procedures. Deloitte & Touche is our external auditor, and we're required to have an independent board. So we have an independent board, includes like Sheila Baer, who ran the FDIC, Bill Bradley, who is a senator from New Jersey, uh, Duncan Niederauer, the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange, Bob Hertz, who is the chairman of FASB, and uh, Jim Manzi, who is the CEO of Lotus Notes. So we have this independent board, it's a majority independent. All of this oversight is part of being a trust company and creating um, uh, the right framework to be to be regulated. And so that's why I think it's important. You know, I think um, uh, the idea here is now customers can say, all right, Paxo says there's $1. I believe there's $1. More importantly, not only is there $1 there, um, I know that they have the right procedures in place to make sure that the $1 will always be there. Right. That there is uh, a way in which they handle customers. There's a way in which they um, manage the cash. There is a way in which they are going through their compliance procedures. That makes me feel comfortable that uh, they're not just saying it. They're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And that gives a completely different, um, I think, um, substance to the stable coin, because on the one hand, the stable coin is freely tradable. We've made it so that it's freely tradable. No one has to be our customer in order to. Uh, get packs in the wild or move packs around the wild. But at the same time, you know what's backing it up is real and that it's held um, in this regulated institution and it's fully segregated. Mm-hmm. And so we're not using it for our own account. We're not using it to fund our operations. We're not going to run away with the money. Um, so these are like really important things. And um, I don't think anyone else would necessarily do that, but you don't have to just have that trust. You can know that someone else is checking. Absolutely. That was actually a question I was going to ask is, is what differentiates packs from the other stable coins that exist? Um, and I think you just kind of listed it. Um, it's segregated from the company. Um, it's free to trade. What, what exchanges is packs on now? So it's on just about all of them. I think we're on uh, over 40 exchanges now. We're on uh, all the top 10. We're it's on Binance and uh, OKX and uh, Bittrex. And uh, you kind of go down the whole list of uh, exchanges um, outside the U.S. Um, and uh, even some in the U.S. Um, so it's widely listed. It's actually the most traded of the stable coins aside from Tether. So it has the most uh, daily trading volume. Um, it's uh, listed on the most exchanges. Um, so it's kind of the, it's the most ubiquitously used. 
um, uh, in everyday trading activities. Nice. So moving away from the stable coin, I understand Paxos also has some other products, uh, one to include ItBit. Um, for what I what I have here in my notes as a crypto asset exchange uh, uh, with uh, services including escrow, custody, and OTC trading. So those last two have become uh, words of um, they're they're kind of magnet or attention grabbing words in in the crypto space lately, and that's uh, custodial and the OTC trading, and that leads me to believe that you could be familiar with what is happening on the institutional side of, of uh, or the institutional sentiment of cryptocurrency or blockchain technology. Are there any trends that you could speak to on the institutional side that that are happening that people might not be privy to? Um, well. I think you can follow the price chart and you get a decent sense of what's going on in uh, in kind of the world, uh, which is that uh, because of the price, the level of uh, interest in the institutional world is is just less uh, than it was a year ago. Um, on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of underlying interest that is continuing to build. People are continuing to invest in the space. Uh, Fidelity said they're going to launch their service in March. Uh, Backed, uh, B-A-K-K-T, um, is another big institutional platform that has been uh, being built out. Um, and there's a couple others. Those are still continuing to happen. But I would say, you know, uh, there's nothing like an upward sloping chart to get anybody enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, a downward sloping one just tends to make people a little less enthusiastic. So that's okay. Um, I've lived through now four uh, Bitcoin uh, winters, or I guess this one's a crypto winter. The other ones are Bitcoin winters. Um, uh, so I've lived through a bunch of these uh, going back. You know, as you started three or four cents. You get to see a lot. Um, and uh, um, I kind of look at these op- uh, as opportunities because you have a chance to really focus on building your business and uh, and part of us building our business is in the institutional sector. So we do custody because we have a trust company. We were the first one that was uh, chartered for this. We are a qualified custodian. Um, and uh, this is a really important designation. Um, and we do over the counter trading. We do it differently than others. Um, we do it only as an agent because we're a trust. We're never able to trade against our customers. We never uh, are able to use our customers' funds um, for our own activities. Mm-hmm. Everything is aggregated. So as from an over-the-counter perspective, we're matching a buyer and a seller. So we can act and provide anonymity, and we can provide um, a trusted place for people to uh, exchange their Bitcoin and cash, but we're not trading for our own account. So we're never on the other side of a, of a customer trade. If you traded with Paxos, Paxos is not trading against you. They are making sure you're trading it with somebody else. Um, And and so uh, that's really important. Being a third party agent is something we take seriously. And I think it um, means that we're always aligned with our customers to try and get them the best price and the best execution. Uh, It's not about trying to incentivize ourselves. Um, We want, you know, the most activity to happen. Um, And so that's how we approach our custody and OTC business. and uh, at the end of the day, when you're building a business, it's about relative speed. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, actually in environments like this, it's easier to go faster than other people because there's less capital that's available. Um, there's less business to go around. And so this is when I kind of look at it as, as a great time to invest in the business and invest in areas that others aren't doing. Um, some players have talked about how they're not going to try and uh, service the institutional market. And uh, whereas we think it's really something that we want to continue very much to be focused on and we can therefore go faster than others over time that helps you build a stronger business. Agreed. I guess the, the last part I want to touch on with Paxos is uh, there's also a precious metal, metals side that you have. Yeah. Um, and this kind of intrigues me because I find that I think historically in, in times of um, central uncertainty, I guess they call it, like when governments are doing weird things, usually precious metals kind of increase in value. At least that's what I've read and that's what I've studied on. And it um, seems like they should be doing that soon, according to what's going on in the world. But could you elaborate <laughs> on um, the precious metal side of, of what Paxos does and uh, especially this um, uh, confirmation service? I think that's yeah. So we, the way we think about our business is that there's uh, really kind of four aspects to it. One is um, the Ipit brand, which is on crypto native assets. Mm -hmm. So uh, assets that are the, the blockchain that you're trading. Um, we have a, a cash business. That's a stable coin business. We have a commodities business. And within that precious metals, we'll talk about what we're doing there. That's very specifically that product. And we also have a securities business, and that's involved in uh, all kinds of different STOs. Um, now, what we do in precious metals, um, and we've approached it a couple different ways, um, is we're able to confirm our clients' trades with the idea that they'll then be able to settle uh, those trades and they'll work them through us. So right now we have confirmed over $300 billion of precious metals trade since we launched the service in basically August. And we've handled something like uh, almost 200,000 different trades. Hmm. Um, so we have a lot of volume that we've confirmed and moved through. And that's about now um, not just making sure trades match because everything in the precious metals market actually happens um, pretty much manually. So we can make sure the trades match uh, between two counterparties and then we can settle the trades, moving precious metals, moving dollars. And we're able to tokenize the precious metals in the process. And so that's what we're really trying to get to is how can we take um, a physical asset and digitize it and allow it to move in a different way, right? The problem with gold is, man, moving a gold bar is hard and, you know, it's not very divisible. And... Um, you know, it's, and this is the kind of a cumbersome process to buy it. Um, so you can make it, you can solve those problems without losing any, any of the actual ownership. So you have gold, we'll have gold sitting in vaults. Uh, you can own um, a fraction of the gold uh, of an actual gold bar sitting in London vaults. Hmm. And you want to redeem that gold, you can redeem it in London or we'll allow you to change it into some other form and redeem it anywhere else. So, that's where we're going with the precious metals business. That's what we're trying to uh, move the market towards. And it's an enormous market. Um, developing this could really change the ability for gold to have um, real portability and exchangeability that it doesn't have now. It kind of has, um, it has a lot of security to it because you own it physically. Uh, 
but it doesn't give you any of the other benefits that it would if it was digitized. Mm. Okay. I like that. Um, easy access to gold is what I like to think of it. Is it. Not a lot of people are into buying gold. It's not a conversation that comes up often, so I always like to try and pique that interest of mine. <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree. I think it's like I think it's because it's so hard, so cumbersome. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm gonna buy some gold. What am I gonna do with it now? Buried in my backyard, or I gotta find yeah. a vault, and that's a pain, and I gotta a cost. Like, you know. It, but if you have a digitized version of the gold, now you get this benefit of you know you could track it all the way back to an individual bar in a vault in London, but you can send it anywhere in the world. Yep, and that's um, one of the biggest uh, perks to crypto and blockchain in general. And a lot of people, it's funny that people don't see the uniqueness, um, um, but but don't don't see the value in digital uniqueness. But really, that's what Bitcoin introduced to humanity at whole is now we have things that are digitally and provably unique. And um, as soon as humanity starts to get a grip on that and understand how powerful it is, I think we're going to start to see some sweeping changes. But um I mean, I have nothing else to discuss, but I do have a trademark question for this particular show I like to ask everyone, and that is, is there anything that I should have asked you uh, or could have asked you that I didn't? Um, that's a good question. Um, there's nothing that comes off the top of my head. You've done a great job of really hitting all the key points here, so I think uh, I think we're well covered. That makes me feel good as an interviewer. I've done this for four <laughs> years. I, I should be good at it by now, so... Um, the one thing I will say that I like, um, and this is kind of out of the box, you may or may not have heard this before, but I like the name Paxos because it's not, I just saw a slew of companies that were bit this, block that, chain this, coin that, and it just is, how do you differentiate yourself with when you're just pegging yourself to whatever it is that you're working in or working with? I like Paxos. It's just... It's kind of intriguing. I don't know. That's just my own weird two cents I, I kind of add to it. But. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. We, we like the name, too. Yeah, I, I imagine so. I imagine so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, thank you very much, Charles, for coming on the show. Um, we appreciate your time. We appreciate you taking the time to come speak with our audience and let us know what Paxos is up to. So. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great to spend time talking. Looking forward to doing it again. Okay, bye-bye.